The scripture reading today is taken from Micah 6, 1 through 8. I'll give you a minute to find it. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miram. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, and you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. Let's hope it's better than 2020. My name is Gary Miles. I'm one of the elders here at Kishwaukee. Pastor Eric is visiting family back in Nebraska this week, but he will be back next Sunday preaching. As a matter of fact, this Next week, he'll be back in the office full-time. So as he makes that transition, you please continue to keep him and his family in your prayers. We took a break from the sermon series on Luke to study First Peter, and that's been a challenging series. We have one more lesson there, which Eric will finish up, and then we will continue again back in the book of Luke. But that left a gap this week to which Eric said I could preach on anything I wanted. Well, that left the door wide open. So what prompted the teaching on today's message really began many years ago, 13 years ago, actually. It was when I was leading the junior high youth group, and for youth Sunday service that year, I gave the message and selected this scripture reading. The thing is, I never felt as though I, and I apologize for the pun here, but I never felt as though I did it justice. I realized for that type of message on You Sunday, I had to condense things, but I felt that I missed the mark to some extent. And honestly, it has nagged me in the back of my mind all these years. So I felt this was an opportune time to do something about that. Now, you might say, gee, Gary, give it a rest. That was 13 years ago. Well, yeah. I guess that gives you a little, maybe, unsettling glimpse into my psyche. I understand completely if you're sensing a need to express your sympathies to Brenda. Feel free. Believe me, she will understand. Before we turn to God's word, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, your word is a light 
unto our path. I pray this morning that you will open our hearts and minds to reveal what you would have us learn. And that it would be not just a message for the moment, but a truth by which we are changed and live out each day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off with framing this message this way. C.S. Lewis once said, What human beings need is not improvement. What we need is redemption. What human beings need is not improvement. What we need is redemption. I dare say that verse 8 is one of the most famous in the Bible, if I can say it that way. Let me read it again. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I know for many of you that verse falls in that handful of favorite verses. It does for me as well. But you see, I have a sense, at least I know it's true for myself, that when these, especially this verse is read and meditated upon, there's this idea that God is boiling down for us some key, simple summary of how we should live, how we should act as committed Christians. We tend to look at what Micah is telling us as a measure of how we are doing. Don't we? I know I do. Just look how Micah words these commands. He says, act justly. Yeah, I'm pretty good with that. I'm fair with people. Check. Love mercy. Do I show mercy? Why, just the other day, some jerk cut me off in traffic. I didn't react at all to him. Just let him go on his way. Yeah, I'd say I'm very merciful. Check. Then the big one. Walk humbly with your God. Hmm. Well, I try very hard to be humble. Yeah, I would say I'm pretty humble. I mean, I know you have to be careful talking about humility, but yeah, I think I'm following that pretty well. Check. Do I exaggerate? Or am I hitting close to home? At least for me, I'm hitting frighteningly close to home. Friends, if we are thinking to ourselves, check to any of this, I submit we have missed the mark, as I believe I did 13 years ago talking on the scripture. Now, so you don't misunderstand me, God's word is clear in this regard. We are to act justly. We are to love mercy. And we are to walk humbly with God. And that does involve how we act in life. But there's more to this scripture. So I want to take another run at this and see if we can't see more precisely what God is telling us through his prophet Micah. But to do that, we need to start by looking back and grounding ourselves in the context of what Micah's world was like. Typical of most of the Old Testament prophets, the book of Micah speaks to the circumstances and events surrounding Israel and Judah at the time, including leading up to this period and, as in this case, what is prophesied to happen in the future. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, and in fact, the writings of Micah share some similarities with the book of Isaiah. This places it roughly in the 700 B.C. time frame. During the time of the Assyrian invasions, especially in the north or the lands of Israel. 
The fall of Jerusalem and Judah in the south and the resulting exile has not yet occurred. Micah bounces back and forth between stating the offenses of the Israelites, the doom that is to befall them, and a message of hope for restoration. Much of the book speaks to why what is happening to the Israelites is in fact happening, placing blame on the failure of God's people, particularly the leaders of God's people, to maintain the covenant relationship with Yahweh. Now, what does maintaining the covenant relationship with God mean at this point in the history of God's people? Well, to get a sense of that, let's look back at what was happening and listen to how Micah describes the offenses against God and his people. In other words, what was going on that constituted breaking that covenant? To do that, we need to back up a bit in the book. So let's start in chapter 2. I want to read from verse 1 and 2. Micah says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. One of the ironies of this verse is the idea of carrying out the evil at morning's light. In ancient times, when courts would meet to hear cases and dispense justice, they would often begin at daylight, signifying the shedding of light on the dark evil that may have been perpetrated. Here, the Lord is showing the perversion of the justice toward evil. Or, continuing in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this of the false prophets, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy, You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. And then listen to the biting sarcasm Micah uses in verse 11 to drive home the point that these false prophets were taking advantage of the people. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. Or chapter 3, verse 5. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. I'm trying to give you a sense of the backdrop of what is going on and how corrupt the leaders of God's people had become. One more, still in chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Micah holds no punches here. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Okay, do you get a sense of what's going on here? Not much quote-unquote good, that's for certain. As a note, when Micah refers to Israel or Jacob, he's referring to both sides of the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, specifically Samaria, Judah in the south, specifically Jerusalem. They both are equally guilty and both feeling the judgment of God. 
Now, Israel's history is one of those continuous cycles of failing to maintain the covenant with God and then repenting on occasion, asking God to help them only to fall back again into some evil ways. And to be sure, throughout their history, the various prophets write about all kinds of evil and corruption and oppression they flicked on others, often the poor and the marginalized, the least among their society. But notice, that is not what is happening here. Greed is overtaking their leadership along with their willingness to be bribed or bought for a price. Remember that because we're going to return to that thought a bit later. And as a result, it's not the poor who are being oppressed here. You might think of it in our modern view as the leadership fleecing the middle class. The leaders were not bothering the the poor because they had no money. They wanted wealth and were using bribery, distortion of the truth, defrauding of people, and injustices in their power to gain it. For that, they had to prey on those who had wealth, and that was the people with homes, with livestock, with some amount of possessions. What we would think of today is the middle class. But there's more to it. Look at that last line of verse 11. Micah says, Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. You see, they were taking the Lord's end of the covenantal relationship for granted, thinking the Lord would always protect them. They abused the covenant. They banked on his promises. And God had had enough. God's judgment was now upon them. The Assyrians were steadily sweeping through the lands, destroying God's people. And here is Micah warning them that the worst is yet to come. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Not a pretty picture. And if you keep reading in chapter 4 and 5, you get even more graphic detail on what will happen to God's people. But wait a minute. How do you say God's people when he's the one bringing all this destruction upon them? You will notice throughout Micah, he uses the phrase often, my people. Now that's a common objection, especially to Old Testament writings and the view of God from the perspective of the Old Testament. Why would this loving God bring such judgment and suffering upon his people. But of course, we know the larger story. And Micah, whether he actually understood it or not, gives a glimpse of it to us in chapter 5. We read it every Advent, so just coming off that season, it's fresh in our minds. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Recognize it? Matthew's Gospel quotes Micah's prophecy for hope of restoration for God's unfolding plan of redemption of his people. And you can imagine how these leaders who ignored God's laws, who abused their positions of authority to gain wealth, who distorted and corrupted God's laws, 
who in their hubris thought that they were untouchable and God would protect them unconditionally, are now accusing God of abandoning his people. In my heart, I think, good, these leaders get what they deserve till I recognize myself in those same failings. My own failure to keep covenant with God. My propensity to do what I want, knowing it's not Christ-like, and yet then crying out to God when things fall apart in my life. I suspect we all fall into that trap on occasion. Okay, so that was the introduction. Now we can finally get to chapter 6. I know that was a lot, but unless we understand the context, we risk missing the text. So the leaders have failed. They have broken covenant with God. And worse, now that judgment is upon them, they are turning the situation around back on God. Well, God has something to say about that, and he does it in the form of a court trial. God prosecutes the case against Israel, which is captured in chapter 6. To help see that, I want to show you how this breaks down and whose voices are playing what parts. Then we'll look more closely at the text and what God is revealing through Micah. Now, understand, all the words are God's, of course, but Micah is relaying them as his prophet and doing so in a manner that reflects various voices. In the trial scene, God plays the part of the plaintiff, the one bringing the complaint and ultimately the judge. Micah serves as his messenger, speaking on occasion and on behalf of the plaintiff, and sort of the court bailiff, if you will. Witnesses? Well, that part is played by the mountains of the, of the earth. Israel, then, is the one on trial as the defendant. So this is how it breaks down. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Micah basically announces court in session. Verses 3 through 5 are God's opening statements. And then verses 6 through 7, Israel rhetorically mounts a defense. Verse 8 is Micah's response. And then verses 9 through 16, which we didn't read today, but they finish out the trial scene. Verse 9, Micah summons Israel to listen to God's judgment. And then verses 10 through 16, God pronounces judgment on Israel. Closing things out in chapter 7, which again we didn't read, but that's a lament for Israel followed by a prophecy of a coming victory. So verses 1 and 2 begin with the announcement that court is in session. Micah introduces the Lord as plaintiff while addressing the mountains as witnesses to hear the Lord's complaint against Israel. Verse 2, he says, Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. When the Supreme Court of the U.S. is called into session, these are the words that are used. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay, all persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. I'm sure you've heard similar pronouncements in courtrooms. That is essentially what is happening here. Hear ye, hear ye, the Lord's court is in session. Draw near and listen. This personification of mountains as witnesses is used on occasion in the Old Testament. It's a literary means to 
denote the solid or steadfast foundation upon which truth will be judged. The description of everlasting, or some translations use ancient, emphasizes that they are the perfect witnesses as they have seen everything from the beginning of creation. I guess one way to explain it, if I were going to go to trial, I would want witnesses that have seen everything who are rock solid with an unshakable foundation in truth. So then verse 3 through 5 is then the opening statements of the Lord. But you will notice, rather than laying out the case against Israel with evidence of wrongdoing, God instead puts the defendants, Israel, immediately on the defensive by questioning them. This is what he says, starting in verse 3. My people, my people again, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. First off, notice he never stops referring to them as my people. It isn't God who has broken the covenant. They are still his, and he desires restoration, not penalties. We need to remember that ourselves, as we all occasionally drift from God. Do not think for one moment he's done with you. He desires all to be brought back into the fold. You will recall Jesus' parable of the good shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to seek out and find the one lost. But why does God ask these questions? Why is he pushing back on them to explain themselves? Well, it goes back to what the leaders and the people were doing as a result of the invasions they were witnessing. Their promised land was being taken, and the people were turning the situation around, seeing God as breaking his covenant no longer protecting them. Recall verse 11 from chapter 3 again. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. They had assumed God's protection regardless of their devotion. And now that they were experiencing great loss, they were placing the blame on God. He will have none of it. And so gives them a little history lesson in how they got to where they were. Reminding them in verse 4 and 5 of his gracious hand leading them out of Egypt and protecting them as they crossed the Jordan into the very land he promised them. He not only holds up his end of the covenant, he initiated the covenant fully out of grace with nothing in return from the beginning. And now they want to place blame on God for abandoning them? God is challenging the Israelites to go ahead and judge him. You can almost hear the, go ahead, I dare you, at the end of verse 3 when he says, answer me. So I want to ask you, who is the judge? Here's the point for all of us. God is judge, not me. God is judge, not me. Now, I realize that sounds blunt, maybe harsh. And to be fair, we don't tend to go around placing blame on God for what happens in our lives. Or do we? I'm thinking how easy it is for me when things don't go just the way I wanted in life to turn to God, not in submission or praise or gratitude, but rather, my first instinct is to pose a question. Why? Now, 
I'm not saying we are not supposed to come before God lamenting a situation that may be very hard. We just went through 1 Peter discussing this type of issues and approaching God in the midst of suffering and how we are supposed to do that. But what I am trying to say is that once I begin to go down that path, I can easily descend into putting God on trial with questions, accusing him of wrongdoing. You see, at that point, I become judge. God, what are you doing? You see, God, why would you do this? Who is now judging what is right, what is best, God or me? We've talked about this before, but survey people on their belief in God and the number one objection comes down to how can a loving God allow fill in the blank? Who is the judge and who is the defendant? The Israelites had fallen into this trap of thinking they knew what God should do for them and when it didn't happen, they blamed God, not themselves. Oh, how often I have fallen into that same trap. We need to remember, God is judge, not me. And thanks be to God, he is the perfect judge, full of grace and mercy and, yes, justice, all held in perfect tension for his glory. Secondly, we see another common pattern develop. Let me read through verses 6 and 7 to get a sense of what the point God is making here. Now remember, this is Israel's rhetorical defense. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you notice there's a lot of questions being asked throughout all this scripture? Well, there are two particularly big ones. Maybe two of the biggest questions a Christian could ask. And here's the first. With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? What does that mean, to come before the Lord? Remember, in the context of this Old Testament prophecy, God's people came to the temple to offer various sacrifices for atonement. Those sacrifices would be animals, foods, oil, flour, whatever the type of sacrifice required based on the sacrificial laws. There are different types of sacrifices, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and so on. And there were allowances for the type of offering based on your wealth or your position. A poor person could offer something of lower value. These offerings were to atone for sin, to get right with God. Remember, after God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he gave them two things, his law and the tabernacle. The law, commandments and other laws, told them how to live with each other and to live for God in a right relationship with God. The covenantal laws. The tabernacle was the place they went to come before God. Later, of course, it became the temple. And why did God give them a place to come before him to atone? Because he knew they wouldn't or couldn't follow the law completely. So they came before God, offered atonement, and maintained the covenant. And notice it specifically references a burnt offering, which was a 
a voluntary act of worship and atonement, one in general to show a person's devotion to God. It also mentions sin. A sin offering was mandatory atonement for a specific sin and expressed a confession of sin leading to God's forgiveness. Okay, with that, let me read these verses once more and notice the ever-rising price of the sacrifice offered, especially in the context of the corruption of the leaders through bribery and selling peace for a price. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Again, these are rhetorical questions posed by Micah as Israel's defense. The answer is obviously no. He's pointing out that they're trying to buy God's forgiveness. After all, they had learned everyone has their price, right? And God is letting them know there is no amount of money or offering that would suffice. 10,000 rivers of oil? You could say all the money in the world, and it's not enough. Not even the life of your firstborn. And at that, they should all have stopped cold, as should we. To the listeners of Micah's day, that statement would hearken back to Abraham and Isaac and God asking him to sacrifice his only son. It would have been horrifying to those in Micah's day as much as it is to us today. There is an Old Testament command, you can find it in Exodus 13, where the Lord commands the people to consecrate every firstborn male to the Lord, to dedicate them to the Lord as an offering. But of course, that was not the taking of life. But here, God raises the stakes, the firstborn life for atonement, and it is still not good enough. There is no amount of sacrifice, not even the life of your child, nothing you can do that will atone for your sin. But there is one life, a firstborn son, whose birth we just celebrated, who could, who did atone for all our sin. Only one whose price was high enough, Jesus Christ, God's only Son. You could look at Micah right here as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Although the people could not have recognized it at the time, we do. And here's the point. God is Redeemer, not me. God is our Redeemer, not me. And he offers that redemption out of grace alone, not out of anything we can do or certainly anything we could offer. Well, there's a lot more I'd like to say about that, but I need to move along. I hope I won't have to wait another 13 years before I get back to it. We now get to the second big question, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Well, we just learned it's nothing we can do, nothing we can offer. As I said earlier, that is often how we tend to view this verse. So what are we supposed to do? What does the Lord require of me? That's the big question. 
First, let me address one thing it's not. You will notice the beginning of the verse sets up the question. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Good. What is good? It's interesting if you look back to the first verse of chapter 3, you will see Micah already was setting them up. He says, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? The word good or goodness is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's expectation of his people. And of course, goodness is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So let me circle back to the beginning and C.S. Lewis's remark about what we need. Remember he said what human beings need is not improvement. What we need is redemption. We don't need to be good as we tend to think of good. We don't need to be nicer. We need newness. We need redemption. We need restoration. And we can't accomplish that by being good, by being better. That word good or goodness carries a lot of meaning, which I don't think our language captures very well. But I like to think of it as Micah described it in chapter 3. They hated good and loved evil. Good represents the state of living void of evil. Now, I don't want to make that a circular argument, but Thomas Aquinas writes extensively on this subject of good and evil, as, as have many others. And we don't have time to explore all that in detail, but I do find it helpful to view evil, at least at a high level, how Aquinas frames the concept of evil as the absence of good. But we are sinful people. In the words of Calvin, we are depraved people. How can there be any good in us? Well, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Now, while I know traditionally these three items offer a tidy three-point message, they also are pointing to a higher calling than how we act or how nice we are. Taken together as one, you can think of this as the Old Testament version of when Jesus answered, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say when questioned by the Pharisee? You know it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the parallel? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Walk humbly with your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Act justly and love mercy. You see, he's not giving us a code of ethics. He's giving us the path of redemption. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? That phrase, to walk with God, is used over and over in Scripture. It is an expression of drawing close to God, of intimacy with God, of being open with God to let him change you. Walking with God has a figurative and a literal aspect to it. Figuratively, Walking with God involves deepening our relationship with him. You know, when Brenda and I find our daily lives getting busy and we sense it drifting apart, we often simply drop everything and decide to go for a walk. It could be a short walk around the neighborhood or a long walk in a park someplace. Where never matters. 
It is something we cherish doing together because it is especially in those times we cut out everything, open up to each other again, and draw close, sharing what we're feeling, what we are struggling with, whatever it is on our hearts and minds. And the thing is, we're changed through it. We are changed, being drawn ever closer as one, understanding each other more, deepening our relationship. That's what walking with God is like. It's spending time with Him. It's opening up to listen to Him. It's being quiet before Him. I've been reading lately about St. Benedict. He was a 6th century monk who started monastic communities to preserve the way of Christ um, on the heels of the fall of the Roman Empire. He wrote something called the Rule, which are simple guidelines to follow for the monks to live out a what they felt was a truly Christian life. But more than guidelines, their focus remained on quiet time spent with the Lord. In fact, they would pray daily for hours. He knew the only way God would ultimately change them was to spend time with God, to walk with God. Now, I'm not telling you that you must spend hours in prayer with God each day. What I do want to tell you, though, and please hear this, is that if you can come to a point of accepting that God's will is made manifest in everything one does all day long, then one's whole day becomes a prayer and communion with God. In other words, a walk with God. But notice Micah qualifies that walk. It is humbly and with your God Much ink has been spilled, or I guess I should say today many words have been digitized, commenting on what humbly means and your God means. But I'd like to boil that all down to this. I went online to get a feel for how in general our society portrays this verse, since it's so well known. It's interesting the amount of art and literature focused on these three commands. But I also noticed two things. One, the context has largely been lost. And two, as a result, the verse has become a catch-all phrase to mean whatever we want it to mean, whatever justice means, whatever mercy means to me. And this brings me back to where I started. Generally, today this involves an understanding of just being nice, of doing our best, of what I define as good. This has even gone to the extent that words, the words with your God get left off and it reads only, be humble. In other words, God has been displaced by the individual person. Walking humbly with God means, above all else, an understanding that God is God, not me. God is God not me. What does it mean to literally walk with God? You see, coming before God with a humble spirit, walking with God in humility, drawing ever closer to him daily that you might know his heart, and by that you will be renewed, transformed more and more into the likeness of his Son. That is what allows us to then literally walk with God to be his hands and feet, to sacrifice ourselves in his service, 
to honestly act justly, to truly love mercy. Not just when it's convenient or easy or by our definition of justice and mercy. It's to walk that, walk, that road that he walked alone to the cross. That is what he has shown us to be good. And that's when we can fully praise him knowing God is judge, not me. Being grateful for his grace, knowing God is redeemer, not me. And giving him glory because God is God, not me. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts deep to the heart. I pray as we all wrestle with our own pride, our sinfulness and our own tendencies to be our God that you will continue to transform us and renew us from within that through the working of your spirit you would draw us ever closer in our walk with you strengthen our faith to trust you in your service to your glory amen now let us pray together the prayer Jesus taught us